In a moment, we're going to read from uh, Luke chapter 17, just a one-off uh, message from there. It's on page 1541, if you've got one of the brown Bibles. If you don't, they're on the table at the back. Go help yourself, and it'll be helpful for you to be able to follow along. I'm going to read to you from the end of Luke 17, and uh, I want to just pick up really from verse 22, page 1541. And it's, about the, it's actually about the return of Jesus, so it's one of those um, pretty weighty things to think and dwell upon, and uh, a call here for the kind of response Jesus wants from us. Let's read the passage. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you'll decide to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. In other words, you won't see me, and you won't see the full kind of unfolding of what my kingdom is here to do, and you'll want that. It says in They will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. So for whatever reason, Jesus is saying at this point, I I won't be around. And people will think suddenly he's appeared here, there, and everywhere. And of course, this has happened all through history. Lots of people have stood up and said, I am Jesus, come back. And then you pretty soon realize that they're just crazy lunatics. And then he says, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So when he does return, he says, there won't be any questions anymore. It won't be like, are you sure? Really? Is, are you, I can't quite tell if that's him or not. It'd be like, no, it's obvious. But first, he says, he must suffer. He's speaking of himself. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So now we're going back thousands of years. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given a marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed? On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. I think one thing that you've got to recognize about the age we live in, uh, I'm sure you'll be familiar with this language, is that people are rejecting binary categories. The idea that you are this or that, and that you must sit within an either-or definition. And it runs all the way through our understanding of, uh, of, of ourselves, of our personhood. People hate this idea of binary language, of being put in a box, of being defined, even for things that have been taken as givens for most people through most of time, uh, we're now saying, no, no, we can't define people like that. Let people define themselves. People tend to, that there's a feeling that if we, if we give people definition, then we're narrowing down, we're controlling, we're squashing people into something which they don't want for themselves. And that you should be able to decide for yourself who you are. And it's all about self-expression and all these kinds of things. Um, and I think to some extent I agree. We can oversimplify the world. We can make... We can make categories that shouldn't really exist and, and, and box people into things that aren't 
in an unfair way. And I can understand why it's considered controlling, why it's controlling to, to call, label people and to put people into these stark categories. And it's seen as a power play even. If I can, if I can decide who, what you are, label you, uh, categorize you, then I have some kind of control over you. Or I've made some judgment over you or something like this. And I get that. It's, there's some of that that makes a lot of sense to me intuitively. But Jesus... <clears throat> crashes against the spirit of the age because he always draws a stark line between two types of human. He consistently, deliberately speaks in the most binary language. He speaks of in and out, lost and found. He speaks of love and hate. He doesn't allow for kind of a middle ground. He says, you either love me or you hate me. He speaks often in, in, in the language of twos. You see it here as well. He said that there'll be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. So all the way through his parables, he speaks of two sons, doesn't he? The older son, the younger son. He speaks of two men going up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he's trying to draw distinctions and categorize and say, you're, you're one or the other. You're either the person who loves God or the person who hates him. You... You're either in or you're out. There's twos. There's all the way through his teaching. There's this very rigid line and definition that he brings to personhood. Why? For one simple reason, that Jesus saw himself as the dividing line among humanity. He saw himself as the entrance point, he called himself the gate. Through You're either on this side or that side. He called himself the way. You're either on the way or you're not on the way. He very much saw himself as the man who, <clears throat> who splits humanity. He said, the time will come and we'll split. We'll turn a father against a son, a mother against a daughter. There's this, this rigid defining of who you are. You're either for or against him, and that's the most important thing about you. How on earth can a man claim that kind of control or that kind of judgment over us? And really, it comes down to me for three, to three things. Because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of what he's yet to do. Partly because of who he is. That he is never grey about his own identity calls himself here, you probably don't, aren't familiar with the language, but he says he's the son of man, which <clears throat> it was a claim to divinity, weirdly. When he said son of God, it actually doesn't mean a claim to, divine, to divinity. When he says son of man, it actually was, and it has to do with the Old Testament background. We can talk about it afterwards if you want, but anyway, that's what it is, because of who he is, because of what he's done. He says here in verse 25 uh, that first, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. No one else in history has laid down his life for all humanity. And that is what Jesus has done. And he confronts us with the reality of that great act of self-sacrifice and says, what do you want to do with this? That's why he can divide us down whether you, what you make of him is the most important thing about you. And what he's talking about here is this third thing, because of what he is yet to do. 
because he's predicting a time when the world will come to an end. Now, of course, that's a familiar idea in our culture at large at the moment. A lot of people are talking about how and when the world is going to come to an end. How and when life as we know it is going to cease. And uh, a lot of people have speculations about this, but Jesus spoke of an end. A lot of people say, well, you know, why are we talking about a coming of Jesus, a return of Jesus, when it's been 2,000 years already and he hasn't shown up yet? How can you speak so confidently and boldly as though this were a guaranteed end to the world, a guaranteed thing in our future? I was reading a little article about um, Eddie Izzard, the brilliant and incredibly intelligent comedian who um, he's, he's, he's done his comedy tours in three or four languages. He's, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. But, and he was asked why he's got such an, an insane work ethic. And he said, because I have the sense that life is short. And he said, a lot, he, said he went on to talk about religion. He says, religious people might think that it goes on after death. And so he's thinking, religious people can relax in life. Actually, I think he's got it a little bit upside down, actually. But anyway, he's saying, I can't, because I think the end is the end. He said, my feeling is that if that's the case, it'd be nice if just one person would, uh, if, if that's the case, it'd be nice if just one person came back and let us know that it was all fine, all confirmed. If one person came back from the dead. He says, of all the billions who've died, if just one of them could come through the clouds and say, you know, it's me, Janine, uh, it's brilliant, there's a really good spa, that would be great. And of course, Eddie is our, he, he, he just puts these things so perfectly, but he's missing one extraordinary fact. It has happened, friends. Jesus did, that's exactly who he was. He was the one who came back. And he, he convinced his own skeptical brother. He convinced um, the 500 witnesses who saw him alive. He convinced the men who went on to die for the claim that he's risen from the dead. The fact of Jesus' resurrection is, is, is incontestable. And people who have tried to contest it have struggled to find a gap in whether it's the historical account, the logical, how you make sense of the early church. Jesus rose from the dead. That's our guarantee that he's going to come again. If, then, it's true that Jesus is coming back, what does he want you to do now? I want to give you three answers to that. He tells, us, he tells you, don't sit back, don't look back, and don't hold back. Let me begin. Don't sit back. He said in the middle there, he describes how the future day when he's going to return is going to be a bit like what happened when Noah um, was in the ark and there was a flood or when Lot ran up from the city of Sodom because God was going to destroy a whole city. And he uses all these examples of what they were up to at the time. Now, I want to ask you a question. Why do you think so few people respond to the extraordinary demands and claims of Jesus? Why is it that so many people are are kind of apathetic to the message of Jesus? Why are people's responses so emotionally out of sync with the greatness of his demands? You know, when I I tell people the gospel, you know, when I talk to people about what what Jesus is about, that he, he came to save us for eternity, people very often nod and think that's so interesting and then just go on, get on with their life as though, as though I haven't just told them the most important thing that they could ever hear. And I can never quite square the fact that people can be responsive and interested in what you're saying about Jesus, but also not that interested to do anything about it. 
And it's not that people are necessarily always hostile to him. In many ways, I prefer it when people are hostile, because then we've got something to talk about. If you can tell me why you think Jesus isn't who he said he was, then we can talk about that. I'd love to engage. I want to debate. I'm interested in that kind of stuff. But when people are just like, that's so interesting. I'll see, I'll see you around. And, and just, that's it. They're gone and done. I'm scratching my head thinking, did you understand anything of what I just said to you? And I don't think the reason, I think the reason Jesus puts his finger on it so, so, so accurately here, the reason is just that life is just so distracting. Life is just so, we just get swamped in everything else. He says in the days of Noah, did you see it there in, in um in verse 27, they're eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage. And then he talks about the days of Lot. Lot was the guy who, who, who ran away from Sodom. He says they were, they were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. And what Jesus is saying is they were just consumed with ordinary stuff. It wasn't necessarily, he's not putting his finger on the bad stuff about the people alive at the time. And there was some pretty horrendous stuff going on. But he's saying, he just said, the reason why they didn't pay any attention to Noah, the reason why they didn't pay attention to Lot is because they were just getting on with their lives. And life is all consuming, isn't it? Especially when you live in 21st century London. But, I, you know, we are consumed in just the ordinary stuff of life. He says they were just distracted. They're not bad things. And most people are not thinking about eternity because they're really thinking about what they're going to have for dinner tonight. You know, which, which coffee shop they're going to go to in their break or, or, or who they're trying to seduce and, and, and or woo, to use the old language. <laughs> or who they're, you know, what, what you're trying to, you know, whether you're going to have kids or not or what, what's the next step on your career path. And really, that kind of stuff occupies most People's thoughts most of the time, doesn't it? And Jesus is saying it's just the ordinary things that mean that people don't face up to, to reality. The stark reality of death, of what Jesus did in his life, of his resurrection, of his claim upon you. That said, I think some people occasionally are provoked to, to really think. 1999 was a great year because the film The Matrix came out. I'm really conscious that some of you were not even born in 1999, which is the weirdest thing. I know some of you are brand new at university. You may have been born in 2000. Ah, scary. But in that film, and you you should see it if you haven't, it's an education. You remember Neo, the main character? At the beginning of the film, they're building this story where he's just got this hunch that something's not right in the world. Of course, what turns out is that he's living in a computer simulation. Everybody is. And how would you know if you were? It would be, you know, if someone puts probes in your brain and was stimulating your brain in the right way, you could, you could be in a computer simulation right now, and no one would know. And eventually, the people outside the simulation realize that he's, he knows he's, 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 there's something wrong. And one of them comes into the simulation, Morpheus, and confronts him. The great scene, the blue pill, the red pill. But he has this brilliant little speech that goes like this. Morpheus talking to Neo. He says, let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. 
You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. Like a splinter in your mind driving you mad. For many of you who have given your life to Jesus at some point, it was because there was a splinter in your mind that made you stop thinking about the ordinary run-of-the-mill things for a moment and think about Jesus. Let me give you an example of some of the things that could be in your mind right now, provoking you, maybe the reason you're here. One of them is futility. That at some point you step back outside of your situation and think, why am I doing all of this? And you're like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he says, it's just all vanity. We all chase after things in life, and then no one stops to think why. A lot of people are compelled to think about the greater things of life because they suddenly realize that there's a futility to their day-to-day existence. Here's another one. Or, the Bible tells us in a few places that when you are most awed by creation, its grandeur, its beauty, there's a resonance in your heart that you're hearing the voice of God. And you know it. Another one is fear and anxiety. A lot of people search for something bigger, something outside of the the present uncertainty when fear grips you. It could be because of stuff on a grand scale. You know, our nuke's going to go off in the next couple of weeks. Or it could be just because of your own situation where you get another job, or you keep the job you're in. Those kinds of things. For some people, it's the weight of guilt. Don't think, if you, if you wrestle with guilt on a day-to-day basis, don't think that it's unique to you. Most people have that, that voice of conscience that nags away. They just try and suppress it. That can be the Holy Spirit provoking you. Another thing is grief. When people experience profound loss, you can have the most extraordinary conversations about about eternity, about life, about death. But why are we only talking about this stuff when the worst happens? Another thing is envy. You may have been sat outside of faith all of your life and you look at friends who who know God and you feel, I wish I had something of what they had. Do you know that's okay? In fact, I'd say it's a good thing to feel like that. There's certain envy that can do you good. Not the envy for people's houses, jobs, wives, husbands, whatever, but the envy for spiritual life might just be the thing that pushes you in the right direction. And maybe also give you one more. And I don't know, many people feel this, but dread. I'm half Monroe. The Monroes come from the north of Scotland, the clan. And the clan motto is two words, dread God. I've got a massive tattoo here, dread God. I'm not going to show you this. It's appropriate if ever you felt the dread of, of God, that's an okay thing to feel. 
It's actually, the Bible says it's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of you discovering truth in life. As long as you ignore that dread and keep running as though you're in control, that's when you're in trouble. Friends, all I want to say to you is that if any of this resonates, the time to act is right now. This week, um, or actually last Monday, my wife um, parked our car on a Sunday. And Monday, I, um, I did a workout, some sweat. You know. It's actually not necessary to the, st- to the story, but I just thought I'd tell you that. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why I'm mentioning this. Anyway, I... Um, Anyway, she had left, no one was in the house, and I, I, I went to have a shower, I got out of the shower, went to the bedroom, and um, I looked out the window, and I looked down the street, and on the street, there was a lady about to put a parking ticket on my car, because someone had left it on the street instead of on the car park, and, you know, who was that, wifey? Um, and I, I felt that sinking dismay, you know? 80 quid for what? For like a silly mistake. And uh, I thought, there's nothing I can do, is there? And then I I stood there for 10 seconds. And then I thought, there is something I can do. I threw on my jogging bottoms and my T-shirt was on backwards. And I pelted it out the house and across the street. And I just went, sorry! Jumped in the car, started the engine and drove off. (laughs) (laughs) She's like about to put the thing on my car window. <laughs> and you know, that, that's, a, that's a pretty good picture of how it works. You know, when people, when people are confronted by the truth about God, really you have a window of opportunity often. The Bible puts it like this. It says, today, if you hear his voice, today, there's a time note, do not harden your hearts, it says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because he's saying, really, there may not be a tomorrow. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be like, oh, you might die tomorrow. But you, know, you might not hear his voice tomorrow. You may never be awakened to spiritual things again. And you've got that window when, when Jesus is whispering to you or shouting to you or whatever, whatever is going on and you can do something about it. Or you can just resign yourself to, well, this is not really me. And I'm not really into this. And I've got other things going on in my life like eating and drinking and buying and selling and all that rubbish that's got nothing to do with eternity, right? Don't sit back. Here's the second thing he says. Don't look back. He goes on and he's speaking about what it'd be like when, when he, he comes back. He says, verse 31, On that day let the one who's on the housetop, housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. That's an interesting little verse, remember Lot's wife, because I bet most of you never really consciously thought that that's one of Jesus' commands. Remember Lot's wife. You get up in the morning and think, okay, today I've got to remember Lot's wife. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I'm obeying Jesus. I've got to remember Lot's wife. We don't tend to think about Lot's wife very much. So we need to, just, we need to go back and think, what's he, what's he saying here? Now, I, I actually think these verses pinpoint... The biggest problem with British Christianity. British people by, by culture, by nature, are, tend to be very suspicious of extremes. 
extreme emotions, except, of course, when it comes to football. That's fine. But with everything else, extreme emotions, extreme passions, extreme, extreme displays of passion, um, we find Americans just awkward, you know, giving us hugs and, and being affectionate and smiling. You know, we like to keep things measured and keep things in control. And it's part of the culture. And you know what? That also affects the way people go about religious life. Because isn't people, Brits have offered always, you know, Anglicanism, which is kind of the, the dominant expression of Christianity in Britain today, is noted for its, its emotionless response to God. And, and, and certainly that's one of the great problems with British Christianity is that people think you can have a little bit of religion that's kind of tacked onto your life. And if you become too religious, then you're, you're a bit weird and a bit fanatical, and it ought only to be a small portion of your life. Ideally, just one hour on a Sunday. I think this is the biggest problem with with British Christianity today. And part of the reason I say that is because it so flies in the face of what Jesus said about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. if, If the bar of what it means to be a British Christian is down there, the bar for what Jesus said to be a disciple is, 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 is all-consuming. He didn't allow any gap. He didn't allow any reticence or reservation. It was like, it's all or nothing. Now, Lot's wife, let's come back to her. She, she was married to Lot, fact number one. And uh, as they were fleeing the city... As they were running away from, the, the angels had said to them, it's a story back in Genesis 19, the angels had said to them, don't turn around and look back at the city. And the story goes, it says, she looked back. That's all she did. Just that, that was simple as that, and that she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, Jesus is trying to, he's calling on this story from thousands of years ago to put a vivid picture in the minds of his disciples, what it means to really be a disciple. Remember Lot's wife. I was reading a man called J.C. Ryle, one of the good Anglicans, um, from a hundred years ago, talking about, about Lot's wife. And he said, it was a small thing. It was a little thing, but it, it revealed her true character. Often the little things in life do, don't they, he says. And it's true. Sometimes your smallest actions are the ones that really show the state of your, your life. He said it was a little thing, but it was a disobedient thing because the angel's command had been very explicit and she decided to ignore that. He said it was a little thing, but it, it revealed proud unbelief in her heart. She wasn't really convinced that God would do what he said he would do. And then he says, most importantly, it was a little thing, but it told of a secret love for the world. He describes it as being like a compass needle, you know, a compass needle is drawn to, its, to the pole. And he said, whatever, even if this woman seemed to be acting the right way, fleeing the city with her husband, like a compass needle, her heart was drawn back to the city that she was in and all the lifestyle that that entailed. There's a number of verses in the New Testament that describe this, this split in our hearts. In James 4, he puts it like this. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, being an enemy of God? He doesn't mean we're not meant to be in the world and and loving people in the world. He just means means that, that, that affection for life which is opposed to God means that you become opposed to God. 
I want you to think, what is the real problem here? It's that she was embodying, and what Jesus is putting his finger on, is the problem of a disintegrated life. When I was at um, in a youth group, and I'm sure many of you who grew up in churches are familiar with this picture, but it's a good one, so I'm going to reuse it. They, they often would use the example of like when you're stepping from a pier into a boat. And really you have three choices in that moment. You either stay on the pier, you step wholeheartedly into the boat and find yourself safely in the middle of the boat, or you do the kind of uncertain thing where you keep one foot on the pier and put one foot into the boat. And you quickly realize you have no stability and that you're doing the most unnatural thing, which is the splits, you know. And you end up in the water. Now, Jesus is saying, and I think he's speaking really to those who, who consider themselves followers of Jesus, that when you have a foot in two worlds, you identify as a follower of Jesus, but there's part of you which is, is running after things that you know displease him, that you are living a disintegrated life. Integrity, to be integrated, means to be one. That there's no split in you. You could, take, you, could, you could prick you at any point and you would be the same person. I could take a biopsy of your soul from the top or the bottom or wherever and you would be the same person through and through. That's what integrity means. But to be disintegrated, to have that integrity torn means that your heart is split between multiple things. Maybe just two things. One of the themes in Jesus' teaching is that he called people back to singleness of focus. In Matthew 6, he put it like this. He says, the eye, of the, lamp is, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And do you know in that word healthy just means single? The older translations translated it as single. If the eye is single... In other words, you have a single-minded focus. Your whole body will be full of light. That's what spiritual health is about. It's being blinkered to everything else around you because your eyes are on Jesus. He put it in a little bit earlier in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 9. He talked about what it means, the, the kind of cost of discipleship. And he said like, like this, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It was the most important job when you were plowing in those days to keep your eyes fixed forward or else your furrows would be wonky. And When Jesus says here, remember Lot's wife, he's saying to you, Christian, is your life disintegrated? Are you torn between two things? It could be a big thing. Or it could be the smallest of things. He's inviting you back to look at him again. I want to bring you to the last point. Don't sit back. Don't look back. Don't hold back. He said in verse 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Many of you will have heard of um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who uh, 
was a German living at the time of the Nazi ascension to power in the 1930s as a pastor. And uh, he's, he's a pretty crazy guy because he, he had tried to assassinate Hitler during the Second World War and ended up in, in, a, in a concentration camp and was executed shortly before the end of the war. But his legend lives on because of his writings and his, his very deep mind, his thinking and clarity on so many things. The fa- most famous of all his works is a book, The Cost of Discipleship. In that book, he contrasts what true discipleship looks like to Jesus versus what he calls or labels cheap grace. That a person just takes for granted the love of God and then lives whatever life they want to live. And Bonhoeffer, uh, there was a most famous section in the book where he, he says, what, he asks the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What is Jesus calling you to? And he answers it like this. He says, the cross... Remember that instrument of death on which Jesus died. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. Thus it begins. In other words, that's how your Christian life has to begin. There has to be a kind of abandonment before you you own Jesus. Thus it begins, he says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. It's the start of the Christian life, he says. And then this famous line, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Otherwise they had to die to their old jobs. Or maybe a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man. Your old life. At his call. So when Jesus asks you, do you want to follow me? The first thing you have to do is die. Here's the challenge. You can be an admirer of Jesus without actually trusting him. And I think that's one of the most dangerous places for someone to be when they consider themselves a follower of Jesus, that you can admire him and like him. But for whatever reason, you find it hard to entrust your life into his hands, which is what it means to be a Christian. It's the very definition of faith. You think about it and how he puts it negatively here. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, he says. You've preserved the life because you don't trust Jesus. It means that if Christ is the king of your heart, then there's a part of your life that's in mutiny, in rebellion against him. It's not letting that kingdom rule, pervade every corner of your being and govern every decision, every love, every affection. It's loving something else in competition with him. So that when there's a tug of war in the heart, sometimes other things beat Jesus. And he says, don't fool yourself, friend. You're not a disciple. 
But then he turns it positively. He says, whoever loses his life will keep it. There's nothing that you can lose for Jesus which you will not be repaid amply. Your self-rule, your dignity sometimes, respectability before others, your safety, your selfishness. You can't ever lose out, he says. Because when you refuse and kill these parts of your life so that you can embrace Jesus, he says, that's when you get life. The only way you can be a happy Christian is when you're all in. When there's no part of you that's torn, split, or holding back. When you say, I'm going to die. I'm going to die to myself. I know these are some of the stronger, harder, and more difficult words of Jesus. But I don't think that he says them without anything but affection and love towards us as his people. And I say that because you know, the thing that he's calling for from you, dying to yourself, is the very thing he was willing to demonstrate, first of all, that he died on the cross. And the death of Jesus on the cross is the proof, demonstration, and display of his passionate love for you. When someone loves you that much, when someone loves you with that deeper commitment, why would you not entrust him completely with everything that you are? Isn't it silly when you really look at it and think, I'm not going to give this part of my life to Jesus. He didn't hold back for you because of his passionate commitment to you. And the cross is the greatest demonstration in history of God's love for us. So friends, really, today is about one thing. It's about a moment of decision. A moment of absolute surrender. I know that that's a thread that ought to run through the whole of the Christian life. But there are also significant moments, aren't there, in the Bible when people consecrate themselves to God again. And say, I belong to you. And I'm inviting you to make that call right now. I'm inviting you to respond to what you sense is true about Jesus, that he is the Lord of all things. And not to waver anymore, whether in your mind or in your heart or in your actions, but to say to him, Lord Jesus, I want to be entirely yours. And I promise you that on the other side of that is what he calls here life. Whenever Jesus used the language of life, it's the fullest, richest promise imaginable. I want to encourage you just to bow your head for a moment as I pray.
We're going to respond to God in a couple of moments with worship and with communion. But before we get there, I want to lead us in a moment of prayer. And I particularly want to encourage you to respond to God yourself right now. If anything of what I've said has resonated with you. Maybe, first of all, you know that you are not a Christian and you're a little bit like the people Jesus described as distracted with eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage, buying and selling. And that's been your life up to now. Not really that much interest in eternal things. And suddenly you think, that's so silly. It's so silly in view of the importance of what Jesus has called us to. Are you going to do something right now? Are you going to respond to him in this moment? Many of us are those who feel the call and the weight though. Don't look back. Don't hold back. And we have to make those daily, momentary, but also key decisions in life that we want to lay down our lives for Jesus. You may feel a particular battle going on in your day-to-day life at the moment. A tearing, a pulling into something you know displeases him. And he's inviting you. Lovingly. But so confidently, so directly does Jesus speak to us. He's not embarrassed. He doesn't waver. He looks you in the eye. You see how direct he is when he says, come to me. If you are a person who would appreciate a prayer, I want to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you. But let's just all pray together for a second. Oh Lord, I sometimes wonder if we've cherished an incomplete view of you, Lord Jesus, and forgotten your mighty demands upon the world. how you invite but also command people what it means to follow you. And so Lord, I pray move upon our hearts to call us to fresh devotion, fresh consecration. If anyone here could honestly say, I don't think I know Jesus, I pray Show yourself right now. Help them to say to you, Lord, I want to follow you. And for those of us, Lord, who feel that our lives are in some way disintegrated, restore to us a single eye what it means to love you with everything that we are and to hold nothing back. In Jesus' name, amen.